Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come before you and we pray that unless you come and you visit us by your spirit, we, we have really no hope here this morning and we do need you to teach us. We need you to open our hearts and open our minds to receive these truths, these great words from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Titus. And God, we pray that even though they were written long ago, that you would apply them to our hearts and to our lives today in this moment and as we live throughout this week. And God, we ask all these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for two weeks now, we have been in a season that's traditionally known as Advent. That word might be familiar to you, but really what Advent means, it's a Latin term, and it literally means coming or appearing, which means it's a season devoted, most Christians devote this season leading up to Christmas in order to anticipate the first coming or the appearing of Jesus into the world. And it's a season that really begins to reorient us and reshift our attention to Christmas. And now at first you might be wondering, well, if that's the case, if if that's what Advent is, then why are we studying Titus, Titus chapter two and Titus chapter three? And you might be wondering, how does that focus our attention on Christmas? After all, and I mentioned this, Titus was a pastor. He lived during the first century. He lived in a place that was very far off, at least to what we're familiar with. He was on the island of Crete, which was in the Mediterranean world. So he wrote a long time ago in an area far away. And if you know the letter of Titus, it's composed mostly of practical wisdom for pastors. And it was written from one pastor, Paul, to this other pastor, Titus. So you might be asking... Why do we preach on this and teach on this around Christmas? And it's kind of for all those reasons that I just mentioned that it's very rare that you ever hear a teaching on Titus at all, let alone a Christmas teaching from this letter. But that's not always been the case. In fact, in the year 1522, there was a man, his name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a great pastor, very well known. The very first Christmas sermon that he delivered was on this passage in Titus chapter 2. That was in the year 1522. Some years later, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he actually preached during the mid-20th century in the United Kingdom. He devoted four weeks just to these four verses that we read in Titus chapter 2. And if you know Martin Lloyd-Jones at all, it's kind of funny because he took four and a half years to get through the book of Romans. So that was pretty common for him to just take a long time on sometimes even just words in the Bible he would preach on. And the reason that I think these men in the past focused on these verses and these passages is because in these passages, you get one of the most, if not the most straightforward references to Christmas in the Bible. Paul actually says it in seven words. We read them just a minute ago. Seven words. He says this, for the grace 
of God has appeared. That, the appearing of the grace of God is the message of Christmas. In Jesus, God's grace has come to earth. It has appeared. Now, my son and I, my son's six years old, but I recently got him as a gift, Delarius' book of Greek myths. It's a very, very fun read for a six-year-old. It begins with the creation story. You might be familiar with the creation story in Greek mythology. It's the story of Uranus. And Uranus is the son and the husband of Gaia, who is Mother Earth. And the two join in union together, and they give birth to six titans, and then three cyclopses, and then three creatures with 50 heads and 100 strong arms. And what happens is Uranus and Gaia, they don't like the the 50-headed creatures. So what they do is they have their sons, the Titans, grab these creatures and they throw them into an underground pit known as Tartarus. And then we go to the second story, and the second story is even more fun. It's the story of Cronus, who is one of these Titans. And Cronus, out of jealousy that one of his sons might usurp his power, He instead decides to eat all of his children. And you might be wondering, what wonderful bedtime stories for your six-year-old. And I agree. It actually serves a purpose, though, I promise. I don't know what the purpose is quite yet, but it does. But I say that to point this out, that my son Eli, even at six years old, realizes there's a distinction here between myth, which are really, you know, very fanciful, and there are these really cleverly devised uh, stories to help us understand our way in the world. There's a difference between myth and reality, history, truth, that these are two separate categories. And all of Jesus' earliest followers wanted to make this distinction clear, that grace appearing was not in the category of myth. This wasn't a story of the gods coming down to earth to do something heroic, although that's what Jesus did. It was a real appearing of the grace of God. In fact, these are words from Peter. Peter was another one of the earliest followers of Jesus. He put it explicitly, writing to an early church. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. See, Jesus is not in the category of myth. He's in the category of truth. He came. God himself dwelt on earth. And now this morning, as we look at this passage in Titus about the grace of God appearing, Paul's focus in his letter to Titus is not so much on the history of grace appearing, but rather what Paul wants to focus our attention on is what does grace do? What did grace come to accomplish and what does grace do in us as people who follow Jesus, who is grace himself? And Paul wants to tell us two things this morning. We'll begin with the first. Paul wants to tell us first that grace brings salvation. Grace brings salvation, and you can see that explicitly in the second half of verse 11. So Paul notes there, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that word salvation can also be translated deliverance. 
uh, with this idea of being delivered from bondage. That was a very powerful word. If you would have heard that word when you heard this letter being read, it would have been pregnant with meaning because if you know the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament and just throughout history, you would have known that God's people were continuously crying out for a deliverer, for a savior to come because they were under repeated threat of bondage. And you don't have to read too far into the Bible to see this. The second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, we see God's people enslaved in the land of Egypt under the most powerful empire throughout the world, the empire of Egypt under the reign of Pharaoh. And then even once they are delivered out of Egypt, they're brought to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But even there, they're wandering and vulnerable in the desert. And God's people are on the brink of annihilation, facing these repeated attacks from the king, kings of the surrounding nations, the king of Arad, the king of the Amorites, the king of Og, the king of Moab. And then even once God's people, again, they inherit the promised land, the land of Canaan. All you see throughout the rest of their 800-year history is that they are attacked by nations that surround them, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, and the Mosquitoites. And all these nations, all these nations, I couldn't help myself there. All of these nations, all that they're doing is they're seeking to oppress and challenge God's people. And you see this kind of hits this climax. After 800 years of relative security in the land, it's finally taken away where the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, they come, they completely destroy the nation of Judah and they drag all the people off into exile. There's even this story, you might be familiar with this. King Manasseh, who was the king of Israel, or sorry, the king of Judah during that time, he was literally hooked in the nose by a fish hook and dragged away to the, to the land of Syria. So oppression has always been a part of the story of the people of God. You might know this name as well, Simon Shema. Simon Shema is this Jewish author of history. He works at Columbia University. He published this documentary on PBS recounting the history of God's people. And he wrote a popular book where he said, quote, looking back into history, you quickly realize that God's people are under constant threat. It's nothing new. In fact, it can be traced back to antiquity, suffering, exile, alienation, and the fear of annihilation are wound throughout the history of the Old Testament. So you realize when Paul writes in verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What he is saying is Jesus, Jesus, the one in whom grace has appeared, by his grace, he has finally brought the long-awaited salvation of God's people, that there is true deliverance in what Jesus has done and what he came to do. And I know that probably leads to a lot of questions, namely, you know, if Jesus has brought salvation, if he's brought deliverance, then why is there still oppression? Why is there still bondage? Why is there still suffering and alienation and fear of annihilation? After all, if Jesus brings salvation, why are those still a reality? I was actually thinking about this this last week in wake of the shootings that happened in Michigan. It made me think of a previous article that I had read by a woman named Mandy Fetter Sawyer. 
She's a professor at a college in San Diego. And writing in 2019, following the Santa Clarita school shootings, which took the lives of two students, she uh, recounts that she knew three people who had relationships with those two victims, and they were impacted by the shooting. And what she does in this article is she relates the statistics on school shooting incidents just in the United States, and they're pretty appalling. She says, there have been over 1,300 school shooting incidents since 1970. And in 2018, she said, there were the greatest number of incidents in any year with 82. In 2018, it was the highest year for the number of victims, including the school shooter, with 51 victims. And she says, since the beginning of 2019, there have been an average of one school shooting per week. She continues, parents and grandparents are gripped with fear each time they drop their children off at school. I honestly can't imagine how students will ever focus on academics and their perpetual state of violence, which just seems to be escalating. And she concludes with simple words, and I think words that the people of God can understand. Will this ever end? Will this ever end? I think that's actually a fair question because we can ask, where's the deliverance? Where is salvation? And it's worth noting, by the way, if you are a follower of Jesus, we are not shielded from any of that tragedy. In fact, Paul, who's the author of this letter to Titus, he died in the year 64, a martyr's death because he believed in Jesus under the reign of Emperor Nero. Eleven of the twelve apostles who were the closest followers of Jesus, we know that they died likewise. They died as martyrs, one by crucifixion upside down, another by beheading, another by hanging, still another flayed to death with knives, and then lastly, one who was boiled in oil. And now fast forward to the 20th century. Well-cited statistics say that there have been more martyrs in the 20th century than all of the previous 19 centuries combined. So if grace has appeared in Jesus, if there is deliverance in his name, where's the deliverance? Will this ever end? Those aren't really the kind of questions that we talk about around Christmas time, are they? But I promise you, if you don't face the dark reality of the world, then you will never understand how wonderful the words that the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all men can be. You'll never understand it. In fact, Tish Harrison Warren, she wrote this New York Times op-ed a while ago. I love the title of it. It says, want to get in the Christmas spirit? Face the darkness. And she writes these words, for Christians, Christmas is the celebration of Jesus' birth. The story that light has come into darkness but Advent bids us first to pause and look with complete honesty at that darkness. It reminds all of us that in one way or another, we are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it. American culture insists that we run at breathless pace from sugar-laced celebration to celebration, three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, and on and on. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. I really like this article, by the way. 
But to rush into Christmas without first taking time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. I think denial would be the proper term there. It's an appropriate word because unless we face the darkness, we'll never understand deliverance. We'll never ask the question, will this end? So that's the question. If Jesus has brought deliverance, salvation, then why do we still have a world like the one we have today? And that's a legitimate question. We're going to return to it. But you have to ask yourself this question before you answer that question, namely this. Is there something greater that we need deliverance from? Are all these things that I've mentioned thus far, all, are they all that we need to be saved from? Now, my family, we love to watch this movie called The Prince of Egypt. You might be familiar with it. Awesome DreamWorks movie. Very well done. It's the story of the Exodus, of God's people in bondage in Egypt being brought out by God's miraculous deliverance. And there's this pivotal scene. It's right before Moses is about to go and confront Pharaoh and release his people from Egypt. And he's looking at his wife, Zipporah. And Zipporah has this free family who's living in the wilderness as, as, as lowly shepherds. But he looks at Zipporah and he says, look at your family. They are free. They have dreams and a promise of a life with dignity. That's what I want for my people. And this is where I have to say, Hollywood falls just a little bit short here. Okay, because as great as physical, political, temporal, economic freedom is, as great as human dignity, devoid of institutional slavery is, that actually misses the point of the Exodus story. See, the Exodus story, true history of the Exodus story, mind you, even though it is historically true, it's made to illustrate. God is using it to illustrate for us a greater bondage to slavery that we all deal with, that we all know. And it's the bondage and slavery to human sin. See, all of Israel's oppressors throughout history, right? Pharaoh, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, even the Romans during Jesus' time, these threats of bondage and slavery Though true, historically, we're just meant to show something that's true-er spiritually. In other words, if you think Pharaoh is a severe taskmaster, if you think chattel American slavery is an egregious sin, wait until you hear about the severity of sin itself and the bondage that it holds every human being to. The point being this, hey, it, even if we rid the world of all suffering, exile, oppression, if we eliminated all religious and political persecution, even if we ended social and economic inequality, we would still be enslaved. There would still be an oppressive force that has us all captive. Now go back to high school. Remember the story, Lord of the Flies by William Golding? Remember that story? Right? It's the story of all these teenagers, these young kids who are unadulterated, by the evils of adult life. And they go to a pristine island where all the conditions are perfect for human flourishing to finally take root. And is that what happens in the story? No, right? It descends into utter chaos. Even a group of innocent youth, uncorrupted in a primitive environment, Golding shows us there that the result is a descent, a slow descent into chaos. 
And why? Because a pristine world of our own making still does not get rid of the sin that exercises power over every individual human heart. Because everywhere we go, no matter how pristine, still has the stain of sin on it. Just to illustrate this in spades, I was thinking about two weeks ago with my kids. It was a perfect morning. I wake up, perfect time. I, I make this wonderful cup of coffee. I read the Bible, right? Everything's going great. And then my kids come up at a reasonable hour. And I say, hey, before we make pancakes this morning, Eli, Laney, I want you to go clean your room. Like, yes, Dad, of course. And they go downstairs and they come up two minutes and 15 seconds later, which tells me that room isn't clean. And I go downstairs and I look, and to my surprise, actually, there's nothing on the floor. But then I look over at the closet, and right there at the closet, there's this closet door that's just a little bit ajar and a little bit askew. So I go and I open that door, and what do I see but a three-foot pile of toys and books and trash everywhere. And now, at that moment, even though the conditions were pristine, they were perfect, right? I, everything was gearing me to have a godly and righteous response to my child. A switch flipped. <laughs> and I start giving my son a treatment on how a properly organized room should look. I say the trash goes in the trash can and the books go on the bookshelf and the toys go in the toy basket. How many times do I have to tell you? And Lainey, my daughter, was the first one to start crying. And right after that starts my son, Eli, who starts to cry. And what this illustrated in spades is that I could have come up with myriad excuses as to why I acted the way that I did. I could have said, you know what, I kind of had a headache. I kind of had my routine thrown off and I, I didn't have my coffee this morning, but those things weren't true. And if I'm honest, the only reason that I did them is because I am still beholden to the power of sin in some regard. I am liable to give in to sin, which still exercises some authority over my life. See, the circumstances didn't make me angry. They merely exposed the anger that was already in my heart. And if there is any hope of any deliverance, any salvation, you have to start there in your own heart. The only cure and the only salvation that exists for that power, according to Paul, is the grace of God, having appeared in Jesus, which brings salvation for all people. And notice, we got to be clear here, notice in verse 11, it says that salvation is for all people, it has appeared for all people. What Paul is not saying there is that every human person is saved. He's not saying that Jesus' grace delivers every person from sin. If we were to say that, we would be contradicting other parts of the Bible, namely Jesus' words himself, the most famous words in all the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's a dark side to those verses, aren't there? For those who do not believe, they will perish. They will not have everlasting life. They will have everlasting condemnation. In fact, that's what Jesus illustrates 
with the previous or the next two verses. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So Paul's not saying everybody's saved. But what he is saying is that all types of people or all kinds of people can be saved. That Jesus didn't come for a particular race or a particular demographic of people. No, his salvation is for everyone because all people need his salvation. And you can actually see that. Just look back in Titus chapter 2. Paul there is instructing Titus, hey, for people to live in the grace of God, these are the type of people that I'm talking about. And he brings up older men saying they're to be sober-minded, dignified, and a list of other things. Then he goes on, verse 3, to talk to older women. And then he continues on from there to talk about younger women and younger men and servants and master, meaning all of these people, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, male, female, servant or master, God's grace brings salvation to all kinds of people. Nobody's excluded. So God's grace, which appeared in Jesus, Paul's saying, brings deliverance from sin. That's the only hope that we have for deliverance of sin. And it's interesting to note, God, once he delivers us from sin in Jesus, from the power of the bondage of sin, he doesn't just let us run wild and free. He actually begins to do something in us. He begins to train us, as Paul says. This is the second thing he tells us. Verse 12, grace trains us. And you see that again. Paul says, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's Paul's view of history. He says, we live in this present age, marked by all the things we've been talking about already, marked by sin. And we are waiting as people who follow Jesus for an age to come, a greater day. What Paul calls our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are people now waiting for glory. I love Bruce Willis movies, by the way, and Harrison Ford movies. That's my kind of flick. But Bruce Willis, there's this lesser-known movie called The Fifth Element, maybe some of you. It's kind of a cult classic. It's the story of Bruce, you know, he's trying to save this world. And there's this approaching world that's coming, this approaching world that is drawing nearer and nearer and nearer. And that's kind of how Paul wants us to think about that age to come. He's saying, there is another age. We live now. Marked in a world by sin, but glory is closing in. The Bible says that the age of glory is going to come in stunning terms. Listen to how the Bible describes this age of glory. It's remarkable and truly comforting if you're a follower of Jesus. We're told John saw this glory. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither sh there shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, Jesus will bring ultimate deliverance. His salvation will come in full. I love how the children's story writer Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it. She says the new heavens and the new earth on that day, all the sad things will come untrue. That's the hope. Jesus not only delivers us from the power of sin now, he promises this world a second coming, a second appearing, a second advent where he will get rid of the presence of sin completely. No more school shootings. No more persecutions. No more pestilence. No more pandemic. No more pain. No more mall Santa or elf on the shelf. They'll have no place in the kingdom of God. None whatsoever. That's our hope. That's our only hope. If Jesus by his death on the cross hasn't delivered us from the power of sin, and if he doesn't promise us a world free from the presence of sin, then it's bleak indeed. This world as it is now is as good as it gets. Bertrand Russell, that name might be familiar to some of you, he's the infamous skeptic of the 19th and 20th century he said, the world that I believe is a world of hard science. In that world, man is the product of causes which had no vision of the end that they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human ge genius are destined to extinction in the vast depths of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Bertrand Russell is coming out with a Hallmark collection of cards, by the way, if <laughs> you're looking for those for your very dark and gloomy uh, nephew and niece. Paul, on the other hand, says no. Nope. The grace of God has appeared truly, historically, really in Jesus. And we can wait as people of God. We wait knowing that because he has come in his first appearing, we have a hope of his second appearing. And before that day, Paul says, grace trains us. It trains us for that world instead of living in this world. It trains us to be more heavenly people and less worldly people. And this grace does two things. In this training process, you see him explicitly, verse 12. Paul says, first, that when God's grace trains us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To renounce the things of this world and living for that next. And secondly, he says that this grace trains us to live positively self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as well. So Paul is saying, live like that new world is a reality. And grace, likewise, will train you to live in such a manner. It has to. If Jesus is bringing a new world, a world delivered from the presence of sin, then we begin to live as people who want to live for that world. And 
you know, oftentimes we think, well, okay, the transition from somebody who's a grave sinner to somebody who's a saint, it's this radical transformation. And it is in a lot of ways. But what Paul has in mind here is actually much more subtle and understated. Paul says, actually, what a changed life by grace looks like, being trained by grace, looks almost blasé. (laughs) So you look at chapter 2, again, look back at who Paul's talking about. He's saying when grace visits these type of people, here's what it looks like. He begins with older men, verse 2, older men. He says, they, living godly lives, trained by grace, begin to have a sober-mindedness about them and a dignity about them. And they start living these self-controlled lives and they grow in their sound knowledge of the faith. See, that's what it looks like to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. And to think of, well, what does it look like to live an ungodly life? You just think of the opposite of all those characteristics that Paul just talked about. Ungodliness, on the other hand, would simply be the flip side of godliness. Rather than being sober-minded and an even-headed person, a person is given to extremes with no moderation and absolutely no balance. That person, everything that that group does or that political party or that denomination does is wrong all the time. And there's no sense of levelness, no sense of sober-mindedness. It's us versus them, always. It's always wrong and always misguided, everything that they do. And rather than, you know, devoting themselves quietly by God's grace to growing in soundness in their faith and in the word of God, instead their time is consumed with current events now and the news now and what's going on in the world now and the state of our country now and how it's all going south now. See, it's a little bit different, this idea of godliness that, Paul brings up here, he gives instruction to older women as well. Right For older women, he says, likewise, you're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to much wine. Teach the younger women, teach them what's good. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. And I love this, by the way, you know, you have older men, long list of stuff. Older women, long list of stuff. Younger women, long list of stuff. He says, younger men, verse 6, just start with self-control, okay? (laughs) Let's just start with one thing, all right? Let's not get into the weeds here. Just control yourself, okay? And that's how God's grace trains us. To be more self-controlled, loving, steadfast, reverent, pure, submissive, sober-minded people. Is that how people would describe you? Is that how people would describe Deer Creek Church? Or Christians? You know what? Those people, those those Christians, they they can see just two sides of an issue. It's unbelievable. They're so level-headed they can affirm the right on the other side, even though they don't fully agree with them. They're so balanced and how they view world events. And they're so, you know, level-headed. They, they're not prone to anger and just like this, you know, visceral reaction to people who disagree with them. They're just sober-minded, self-controlled, loving, steadfast, pure people. And they know their Bible so well. They just know their Bible. And they can give you an honest and good answer to the things that you have questions about. The ancient church, they used to have a, uh, 
really fascinating way. When, before they would baptize somebody, you know, they'd have these lists of vows that people would have to undertake. This is adult baptisms, right? And one of those vows, I love this, they would say, do you renounce Satan and all of his works? See that, that idea of renunciation of ungodliness and worldly passions? Do you renounce Satan and all of his works? See, what they realized is that this world, this present age, is not neutral. This world, this age, I'm not saying that everything in this world is bad, but what we are saying and what they would say is that the bent and the momentum of this present age is not toward godliness and heavenly passions. Rather, it's moving toward ungodliness and worldly passions destined to pass away, as Revelation 21 said. And as a consequence... We should expect as people of God swimming against that stream by God's grace that we will live a life of tension and this training process will oftentimes be quite grueling because God's changing us into a completely different type of people. Jesus said likewise, he said, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. But he says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Another way of putting this, C.S. Lewis put it well in his screw tape letters. Screw tape letters were the writings of one demon to his nephew demon. And the older demon says, this is a great way to tempt people. He says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope. Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle screw tape. We can expect that this training process can oftentimes be challenging and grueling as God changes us into people who more reflect his son, Jesus Christ. And, you know, I often face questions regularly. You know, if I have God's grace, shouldn't my life be easier? If God is gracious to me, shouldn't life be serene and tranquil? And in one sense, yes, you have peace with God. His wrath and condemnation no longer is a threat to you. But in another sense, no, God's grace is changing us. It's training us. And that process can be grueling and challenging as we live for a new world. You know, if you go to the gym and you want to go from string bean to strong, right? You would expect that when you leave the gym, you're going to be sore and stretched and experience pain and discomfort from the physical training regimen that you put yourself under. So why would we expect that God's grace isn't going to do likewise? God is training us out of ungodliness to godliness, out of worldly passions to heavenly passions. Why would we expect that to feel any different? But as I close, here's the comfort. Here's the great comfort in this as God's Grace delivers us from sin and trains us to be more heavenly built people in the image of his son, Jesus, is that we can trust Jesus in this process. Notice what Paul closes on here in verse 14. They're very comforting words because we know that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to navigate with us this training process. But Paul says, also look back to Jesus. Look what happened to him. Verse 14, Jesus gave himself. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He redeemed us by shedding his own blood to pay the ransom price to purchase us back from worldliness, to purchase us back from death, to purchase us back from Satan himself. So Paul is saying, the way Jesus freed you, the way he delivered you is that he became a slave himself. The way that Jesus removed sin from you was by dying the death that your sin deserves. He redeemed you by shedding his own blood. You are purified in his sight and zealous for good works because he has accomplished it. Jesus, in order to save us and train us, became one of us. He died for our sin, endured our pain, and suffered in our place. And I probably can't close this out with any better words than the words of Dorothy Sayers. She writes, the incarnation, this idea of grace appearing, means that for whatever reason, God allows us to suffer, to be subject to sorrow and death, but he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He exacts nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritation of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us, all for us. And through it, he thought it was well worth his time. The infinite God thought it was well worth his time to deliver us from sin by his grace and train us for the world to come. What a savior. Let's pray. Eternal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are the King of kings as we sung about this morning. You are the God who has promised us a world where you reign and rule as king fully and finally without the presence of sin. And God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who's our Lord, our Savior, to deliver us from the crippling power of sin in our own hearts and sin in the world. Thank you for that deliverance, God. We praise you and thank you for it. And we ask you, Heavenly Father, by your spirit, that you would more and more train us to reflect the goodness, the beauty, the righteousness, the goodness and the uprightness of your son, Jesus Christ. Make us those type of people who live for that great world to come where there will be no tears, no pain, no sorrow, no death. Thank you for this deliverance, God. And we rejoice and pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.